Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. This is Dakota Spotlight Season 3, The House on Sweet and 7th, a production of Forum Communications. I'm James Walner. This podcast contains content that some may find disturbing. Discretion is advised. Interviewing Misty Jones was never part of my game plan. For one, I didn't think I'd ever be able to find her. I had the feeling she'd be one of those people laying low, flying below the radar, still hidden beneath an underbelly in some town somewhere. And if I could find her, I thought she'd never agree to meet with me. I'll admit I also feared she might be in prison, or much worse, she might be dead, that the path she was on at age 16 might have led her to a very dark place. One day, I received Misty's contact information unexpectedly. I emailed Misty. She replied. She asked me to send her the trial transcripts and some police documents from her interviews all those 22 years earlier. Then, two weeks later, I drove the three and a half hours from western North Dakota to Fargo to meet Misty Jones. While driving along Interstate 94, I did a lot of thinking, and I passed a lot of places related to this story. Landmarks that now took on new meaning for me personally. Everything suddenly related to the sad event that took Barbara and Gordon's lives. First came the town of New Salem, with its giant statue of a cow watching me from its hilltop perch. My previous memories of New Salem involved watching high school basketball, but that day... I remembered that this town was where Misty Jones lived in 1998. I knew that five days after the murders, a Morton County Sheriff's deputy named Kirkmeyer drove to Misty's house in New Salem to retrieve some evidence, a small gas can. Just before the Missouri River, I passed Mandan, where Michelle Werner and Robert Lawrence dumped bloody blankets in J.C. Park, and where a swimming hole dubbed the Rapids was a favorite hangout for the kids on East Sweet Avenue. I knew that some of them went swimming there just a few hours before the crime, and the next day they rendezvoused there again to wave goodbye as their heroes, Brian and Robert, drove off in stolen vehicles. Once across the Missouri River, I passed the state capitol building in Bismarck, and I thought more about the house on Sweet and Seventh than I did the house on Laredo Drive. Despite a few unanswered questions about the homicides, it was pretty clear what ultimately happened on Laredo Drive. The world inside 701 East Suite Avenue, though, that was a world I felt I'd never understand. I had wanted to understand it, though, and from the very start of this project, I had hoped to interview Amy Werner, Michelle Werner, and others. Amy, who first tipped off police about the crime, but then later posed proudly alongside her sister Michelle for a newspaper article, declaring her everlasting love for Bryant, her regret that she hadn't run away with the killers, her determination to marry him no matter what. Amy, one of six people arrested for breaking into Bryant's parents' house, the crime scene. I did reach out to Pam Werner to request interviews with her and her daughters and Ryan, 
On behalf of her daughters and herself, Pam respectfully declined to take part in this story. Sadly, her son Ryan passed away in 2009. On a lonely stretch of highway somewhere between Bismarck and Jamestown, North Dakota, I thought about how this crime affected the lives of so many people. It struck me then that this was the same road that Detective Lloyd Halverson and his family practically lived on in 1998, traveling to and from Rochester, Minnesota, where his daughter underwent chemotherapy and multiple surgeries. I wondered how the young man managed to juggle the events of 1998, closing his eyes at night, praying for the beautiful life of his beautiful daughter, and then the next day, somehow, maintaining composure while processing an ugly crime scene or interviewing teenagers with attitude. And that reminded me of something retired detective Bob Haas told me, namely how proud he had been of everyone who had worked on that case. Yeah, they're, they're human too, and they have emotions. And for the most part, a lot of these guys have families too with young kids and stuff. And they kind of, I guess, project out onto their families and how they would feel if that were to occur to their family. Ultimately, Lloyd's daughter overcame a 15% chance of living to the age of three. Today, she lives in Fargo and has a degree as a sign language interpreter. Passing Jamestown, North Dakota, I thought about Misty Jones again. I recalled that three months after the murders, she was committed to the psych ward at the state hospital in Jamestown. I remembered reading that she'd been put in isolation once because the staff had discovered a photograph she had somehow smuggled in with her. It wasn't a photo of her boyfriend, Rick. It was a photo of Brian Erickson. It was then that I realized why I had resisted seeking out Misty from the beginning. In some ways, I think, for me, the girl with the little red car wasn't even a real person. She had become almost a nebulous character to me, a mysterious spirit whose movements and behavior in 1998 defied understanding for so many people. Misty Jones had become my ghost. Finally, Fargo appeared on the horizon, and I began to mentally prepare myself to ask her many questions. I wanted to know what she knew. And as Lloyd Halverson said, I wanted to understand what she was thinking back then. Simply put, I wanted to understand. Finally, I parked my car in downtown Fargo, North Dakota, outside of a church named the Lighthouse Church. And then I entered this church and sat down with Misty Jones and her pastor. And as you might have already guessed, Misty was not a nebulous spirit after all, but rather she is a human being with a story of her own. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. I'm Dale Wolf. I'm a pastor of Lighthouse Church. Uh, Lighthouse Church is a recovery-based church in downtown Fargo. 
Uh, we work with people who um, are often putting their life back together, uh, who have gone through some struggles, uh, who are seeking um, a, a community of, of support. And so we, we say that we are here to uh, provide a place of love, encouragement, hope, and recovery for people. What, what I'd like to share, I think, is um, the Misty that you, you learn about when she was 16 uh, is not the Misty that I know. And, you know, the Misty that I have come to know is, is a young woman uh, full of, of life and faith and love, empathy and compassion. I asked Misty Jones to first tell us a little bit about her life before this crime took place, and then to tell us about her life after the crime. Finally, I would ask her other questions. Questions like the ones Lloyd Hollerson and Bob Haas had asked. Why were the Erikstads killed? What was Rick Storhog's role? How long did it take her to overcome her blind loyalty for Robert and Brian? Or does she perhaps still feel the same way today? And really, what happened on that night in September of 1998? Yes, I'm 38. I am married. I have two kids, a boy and a girl. I have um, two, three stepsons, and now I have a grandson. So yeah, I was born in Page, Arizona. My mom and dad, uh, actually my mom ran away with my dad because my mom was being sexually abused by her dad. Um, and so she got married at, when she was 16. Two years later, I here I come. So I had my first drink when I was a baby. Um, my dad would put beer in my bottle. My dad chose drugs over me, and my mom left him when I was five and um, moved us 1,800 miles away to North Dakota to be with my grandma. My mom had a boyfriend when I was about six, I guess. He was very abusive towards me. Um, and the abuse turned into sexual abuse. Misty started drinking at the age of 12 when a woman she was babysitting for provided her with alcohol. Basically at her house all summer that year. Um, I was babysitting for her to go to the bar, so I would just stay the night at her house. And so she'd come home and there'd be parties, and, and I got drunk every night. Misty says that to this day, she doesn't understand how she even passed the ninth grade. Drugs were readily available to her, and she believes the school she was enrolled in at the time, in Mandan, was well aware of her situation. They knew that I was high. I mean, what can you do? I did what I wanted to do. I never really had to pay for my drugs. People just share them. Um, So-and-so would have a bag one day, so-and-so, someone else would have a bag the next day, and... You just, you're all stoners, so you just share with each other. By the age of 15, Misty had tried lots of drugs in lots of ways, including using a needle. Um, most, mostly smoked weed, um, did acid my first time, um, shrooms, shot up. I was doing meth and coke. And then her mother moved her to the small town of New Salem, North Dakota, about 30 miles west of Mandan. Misty refused to go to high school in New Salem. I did not want to go to uh, goat roping school, is what I said. Um, and so I, she did homeschooling for me. Um, I found her answer keys, and I did all, like I cheated. 
you know, it took me like two weeks to finish it all. And I basically got to do whatever I wanted. I had a car then. That's when I started really drinking and partying like crazy. About four months before the crime, Misty turned 16 and her mother had a surprise for her. Uh, My mom decided to take us to Arizona to see my dad for the first time since I was five. So it was like meeting my dad for the first time. It was, you know, I was so excited to meet him. And my experience in Arizona was um, alcohol and drugs. My father bought the alcohol. um, So I partied like crazy. Found somebody with meth down there. It was on my mind. I was thinking about the meth, you know. When Misty returned from a reunion with her father, another party was waiting for her in Bismarck, the summer of 1998. She had no way of knowing what was lurking on the other side of summer in September. On the other hand, 16-year-old Misty Jones didn't spend a lot of time worrying about what was coming or what might happen. I didn't know where I would sleep sometimes. I just knew I'd follow the flow of the party and... um You know, I always had an excuse for my mom. After the Ericsteds were murdered, and after Brian and Robert went to prison, Misty moved to Fargo with Rick Storhog, her boyfriend. They lived with Rick's mother, Betty, and for once, an adult took Misty under her wing. Betty Storhog helped Misty to finish school. Misty stopped taking drugs, at least for a while. Things were looking good, but then Rick dropped out of college, and things went downhill really fast for both of them. I don't remember even how we ended up starting to do drugs again, but it um, came and it came fast. It was, um, they were making meth, um, and then he was selling meth and doing, we were doing all kinds of drugs at this time. Uh, We would stay at hotels sometimes, and I would crouch underneath the sink in the bathroom and crying like, you know, God, let me die. But whenever I'd be crying and praying to God to let me just die, Rick would just hand me a spoon and a needle underneath. He'd be doing his stuff on top of the sink, and he would just hand it to me, and I would take it like that was what I did. And then Rick and Misty got arrested for drug-related crimes, and they both went to prison. So I got out of prison in 2003. I wanted to be sober again. It meant a lot to me to be sober While attempting to turn her life around, Misty met her future husband, who was attempting to do the same thing. Misty stopped drinking and taking drugs. I stayed sober for 12 years. I had married that man, helped raise his sons, two of them. We got married, and then I had my son and my daughter. Um, Life was amazing. Life was amazing. And then one day, Misty thought maybe she could have just one drink. Just one Long Island iced tea after 12 years of sobriety. That's how it started. I decided one day that I was going to have a Long Island tea. Which led to pain pills and more alcohol and more drugs. I had such shame because I um, lost my business. I lost my kids. I felt like I was losing my husband. Um, I lost everything, and it was so fast. I felt like a failure, and everything I did I failed at at that point, you know? It was a dark time for Misty and her husband, and yet a couple years later they turned things around again. Basically I promised him that I wouldn't drink or smoke weed again if he stopped doing meth, Um, and that was two and a half years ago. So we now got our kids back. 
Today, Misty works as a peer support specialist for the state of North Dakota. And what that is, is a somebody who has um, past experiences of, you know, mental health and um, drug abuse. And right now we help people on parole and probation. After this short break, Misty will tell us about Robert and Brian, Rick and Ryan, the house on East Sweet Avenue, and more. This is Dakota Spotlight with James Walner. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a member at inforum.com slash subscribe. Your support will get you unlimited access to additional videos, documents, photos, and more about this crime. I asked Misty to tell us how she met Brian Erickson. So my mom used to work at the bowling alley. That was one of her jobs. And I was constantly at the bowling alley. Um, Brian was there one day shooting pool. Misty and Brian dated, but Misty didn't want to be tied down, so she broke up with him. He was funny. He was caring. He was kind of bashful, in a way. He was my best friend. And what about Robert Lawrence? What could Misty tell us about him? He was uh, a teacher in a way. He um, taught me that if uh, I was driving down the road and I was swerving, because I I used to drive drunk a lot, and um, to pretend like I was messing with the stereo system if I drove by a cop, because then I'd have a reason to be swerving, you know. Um, Taught me how to shoplift a little. He was just kind of a teacher, and uh, um, I just know that he was there and Michelle's boyfriend, and um, the guys all really looked up to him. He was mean, though. He, like, I heard one time he jumped out of the back of a pickup and punched a black guy with brass knuckles for no reason other than just being black. And the world inside of 701 East Suite Avenue? What did Misty remember about that? Ryan and um, Amy and Michelle live there. Uh, Pam and Naomi and Weasel lived upstairs. Um, Ryan had a door. You just go down and go in. And his room was pretty big. You know, I think he had a couch and then a big bed and then there was still room for other things. And um, we could just go in whenever we wanted and if I needed a place to stay or anything, I could just, even if it was like two in the morning, I could just go in and then go to bed. And the two runaways, Dave and Cassie. Yeah, they were in treatment with me. I didn't tell them to run away, but, you know, I gave them a place if they did. Yeah, because I knew that it would be okay there. Nobody cared. It was what I would call now a flop house or a trap house, basically. And the adults enabling teens to do drugs and drink alcohol? Looking back now, was Misty resentful? They were doing drugs upstairs. That's where we got the meth from. We didn't have to ask them for alcohol or anything. They just never came downstairs. Like our own apartment down there. And as long as we left them alone, they left us alone. They were in their own addiction also. And when you are in your addiction, you don't, you don't care. You think about yourself. Like, it makes me sad, you know. I wondered if Misty also remembered Robert and Brian being secretive that night. 
Yeah, and that was weird for everybody just parties. Nobody has secrets really there. I asked Misty to tell us about that night, starting with when Robert and Brian and Misty left the house on East Sweet Avenue to go find Rick. To see if Rick was still at DJ's. That was how we got into the car, because we went to go look for Rick. And uh, so we went to DJ's to see if Rick was there, and he wasn't. his car wasn't there. So we drove to Rick's house, and that's when we knocking on his window and left him a note on his car. I don't remember the note. I remember that there was a note, um, but I don't remember. I had a copy of the note with me. Would you like to see it now? Yeah. What's the gist of the note? You want to tell us? Yeah, that he left without saying goodbye. And was that Brian that wrote, bad, 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 Rick, bad, bad, I hate you? Yeah. How does it feel seeing that note again? <laughs> I don't know. I kind of wondered what it said. And Rick Storhog, what did he know back then? So Rick told me afterwards that it was supposed to be him, um, that he decided not to do it because they were going to do it messy and leave evidence in the house. Um, Rick actually had a different plan, and it was to... Um, shoot him to take him somewhere where there was a hole already done. And that way there was no evidence of bodies or anything. Misty does recall going to the gas station before the murders when Brian stole some beer and they all drove off without paying for the gas. I drove there and then um, Robert's like, I'll put gas in your car. Why don't you hop in back and I'll drive. And uh, Brian, I remember Brian running out of the store, and then Robert gunned it. I asked Misty if she knew why they were going to Brian's parents' house. I don't think, I don't know. I remember that I knew, but I don't know. I just said that I knew, and um, I don't remember how I knew. And why did she go in the garage? I was a very argumentative little girl. I would be the one that would say nobody's going to tell me what to do. I argued a lot, and so when they told me to wait in the car, I said, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to go in the garage, because you can smoke in the garage. And uh, so I went in there and sat on the cooler. I say cooler, but it's a freezer. I sat on the big freezer and smoked a cigarette. I read in the transcript that, you know, Brian went in and said that they were awake and all that. I don't remember any of that. I do remember hearing, um, I do remember hearing a lot of banging and the dad screaming, what the fuck? And then I remember hearing his mom scream. Then they came in their garage and they had blood on their hands. And some reason I, re I remember thinking that they killed a cat in front of them. For some reason, I that's what in in my head that was what they did was they scared him and killed like a cat or something, and um, so I went upstairs, and um, there was his dad laying on the floor, and uh, then I walked into the down the hall into the bedroom, and um, 
His mom was still alive, but um, how did you know that? She was breathing, I think. In the paperwork, it says that she was saying "I love you," but I don't remember that. I remember Robert screaming, "Cut her in the jugular vein!" Cut, cut her in the jugular vein, and like I remember Brian holding her head and stabbing her repeatedly, and I just stood there. And watched, and uh, then I said, I have to go get help. And they, they let me leave. I asked Misty to set the story straight on Ryan Werner. Did he see bodies, move bodies, dump bodies? Did he do anything? No. No, in fact, I was kind of mad that everybody kept thinking that. I remember that he ended up going to YCC or something afterwards, and I felt bad for him because he didn't have anything to do with it. I remember bringing Ryan to the house, and... We couldn't get in because the door was locked. We knew that they were gone with the bodies because of the blood, and um, the truck was gone. And so um, I drove Ryan back home. In my brain, it was a movie. It all I saw was my friend that needed help. I didn't. It didn't click that I knew it. Like, I think I knew, I knew it, but I didn't know it, you know? Like, it, my, I think my brain protected me from it by playing it as a movie. And still to this day, it's like a movie in my head. All of it. And what about tagging along to Selfridge to dispose of bodies? What was she thinking? So what I remember is um, Brian popping in, popping his head in, and saying, Misty, I need you. And um, I didn't know really why, and he said, come with us. And uh, so then I got in the truck. Um, I didn't know the bodies were still in the truck when I got in it. I found that out later. Um, at first, uh, Brian was just crying and sad, and, um, I held him for a while in the truck, cradled him like a baby and rocked him. I just felt bad for my friend. I just knew he was hurting so bad. And, uh, Robert, um, was like driving and he's like, you like my new truck? Yeah, and then the sun started coming up. They both got out. I kind of faintly remember my feet touching the ground. And, um, and I remember that when they were picking up the bodies. I'm going to paraphrase what Misty told me next. It's a little too disturbing, in my opinion, to share verbatim and in detail. Basically, what she told me is that Robert Lawrence got a kick out of picking up and then dropping the bodies repeatedly on the ground because of a certain noise that was created by doing so. 
And what kind of feelings does Misty have towards Brian and Robert today? Brian, I don't know what it is. Um, I have compassion for him. I um, don't know him anymore, so I can't even possibly love him. Um, I don't know. That one's hard. Robert, I'm honestly kind of scared for if he ever gets out. And I don't know if it was, I, I can't get the image. What he did, the way he acted, and the way Brian acted were totally different afterwards. I felt bad. I think that's why I was stuck on Brian, because I could see how sad he was. And I could see how not sad Robert was with the, I'll never get that image out of my head with the truck, you know, like my new truck. And what about the reluctance of so many people to cooperate with the police when they were investigating this double homicide? In the drug world, you don't tell on people you're a narc. You don't want to be labeled that person because that will ruin you. Nobody will want to do drugs with you. Nobody will want to talk to you. I just knew that that was bad. That was instilled in my head since I was 12 years old. I can only assume that that's their reasoning, too. Finally, I asked Misty about the letter she wrote to Brian and Robert months after the crimes. When she told them that she would name her sons after them, she would always love them, that they didn't deserve what had happened to them. This was all bullshit, and they would always be connected. I even played for her the audio from my interview with Lloyd Halverson and let him ask Misty the question. And exposed her to this awful crime. I, I, would, I would say, what's her motivation for doing this? Why, why would she come out and, and say that? He murdered, brutally murdered, two innocent people. So what I've learned that my brain protected me from the murders, that two people were dead. And all I thought about, I didn't, I say that it's bullshit that he's there. I felt like that. I didn't think there was, I knew it. You know, everybody knows that there was two dead bodies, but I didn't think he deserved to be there because I didn't, process that he had done it. Today I'm realizing that it, my brain protected me. So when, I, when I'm writing him, telling him that it's bullshit, all of these things were, are my normal routine. Like, why is he in jail? He shouldn't be in there. He should be out here. Because I didn't process the fact that he had killed somebody. I knew it. People talked about it. People kept asking me, telling me, uh, there's these two bodies you need to think about. I remember in the psych ward, people yelling at me, telling me, don't you care? Are you that... Whatever they said, I don't remember. I remember being in prison five years later, three years sober, and the first time I realized, oh my God, there was two people died. 
So all my actions that are unexplainable, I blocked the whole thing out of my head until I was old enough and my brain was thought I was ready. I also told Misty that I felt it was quite possible that there would be some harsh criticism towards her after this podcast comes out, and that I'd already been told by some that they felt that in some ways Misty was just as culpable as were Robert and Brian. I thought Misty deserved an opportunity to comment on this. I think she's just as complicit as as these other two. Sure, she didn't stab anybody, she didn't kill anybody, but there were actions that she could have taken Maybe two people wouldn't have lost their lives. I've had those feelings about myself, too, most of my adult life since I've remembered, realized that two people were dead. I've had that guilt. And um, when I got out of prison, I went to their gravestone, looked for it anyway because I wanted to tell him I'm sorry. That was the first time I realized that people didn't have their mom and dad. People didn't have their brother and sister. It was the first time that it clicked that there was two people that weren't living anymore. That's when I reached back out to Brian because I wanted answers. Misty reached out to Brian years ago. She even went to see him once in prison. She was looking for answers. Answers to some of the very same questions Bob Haas and others are still asking to this day. Why he did it? What happened? Why was I there? Why did he do it in front of me? But once she was sitting in front of Brian at the prison years ago, she lost her nerve and never did ask him, never did get those answers. Yeah, so I finally um, talked to him on the phone the other day. The other day? Yeah. Like how many days ago? Like Monday and Tuesday. Really? And I finally asked him. But I can't tell you because that's his story to tell you. Yes, you heard Misty correctly. Just a few days before my interview with her, she reached out to Brian Erickstead again. He is currently serving his time in the North Dakota State Penitentiary. Robert Lawrence is also there. They both received a sentence of life in prison with the possibility of parole. Misty told me that Brian Erickstead is willing to be interviewed for this podcast. At the time of this recording, I have spoken to him three times on the phone, but those conversations have been preliminary ones, so all I can say is be on the lookout for an update episode, if that interview ever takes place. In the beginning of this podcast, I said that a disparity existed and still exists between two separate worlds. I said that this podcast was a deep dive, an attempt to retrieve understanding. I'll be honest and say, I don't know if I understand it all that much better now. Yeah, I have better insight, and I can see that there were many factors involved and why people made the choices they ultimately made. But somehow it feels like the story changes depending on whose eyes you look through. For example, regarding Misty Jones and her role in this event, we have many different sets of eyes and as many different opinions. Misty Jones' pastor, Dale Wolf of Lighthouse Church, sees things through his eyes and his world. You know, I, I hear some of the story and the questions, and I think, you know, for heaven's sake, she was a 16-year-old kid. 
um, drugs and alcohol affect your cognitive abilities. Retired Detective Bob Haas sees things this way. She could have walked away. She could have gone knocked on somebody's door saying, call the police, you know. There's something going on over here. We need the police. She did none of that. And former Bismarck police detective Lloyd Halverson sees things through his eyes, and he said this. I think the two people that needed to be held accountable were held accountable. What do you see through your eyes? And since people will ask me, I'll end this podcast with what I see through my eyes. Not because what I see bears more weight than anyone else's, only because it's a good place to end this story. And this story must now come to an end for now. What I see is this. Remember back in episode one, when I told you about all those residents of Bismarck lining up to escape to the movies, eager to buy their copy of the movie Titanic on September 1st, 1998, two weeks before Gordon and Barbara lost their lives. Titanic was called the ship of dreams. I can see that the 16-year-old Misty Jones in some ways did the same thing. She escaped to the movie in her brain. Like a movie in my head. Like a movie in my head. I'll admit, though, I'm a little confused by this, because if Misty did not understand that two people died, how did she so clearly understand a crime took place, initially stating she would never testify in court? I will not testify against them. I will not tell anybody. No, no. But perhaps I'm splitting hairs here. Nothing about this is easy to understand. I think that maybe the 16-year-old Misty Jones was correct when she wrote to Robert and Brian in jail and said, we will always be connected. I think they are tethered and always will be tethered together by this horrific event. But also, especially in the case of Misty and Brian, what my eyes see is two connected people who don't want to fully disconnect. Do not let go of my hand! I'll never let go. I'd like to thank you for listening to Season 3 of Dakota Spotlight. Efforts by Forum Communications to locate Rick Storhog for comment have been unsuccessful. The TV news audio from 1998 was provided courtesy of the State Historical Society of North Dakota. The House on Sweet and 7th is hosted and reported by me, James Wolner, and is a production of Forum Communications Company. Don't miss the accompanying mini-documentary, The House on Sweet and 7th, which will be available on any North Dakota Forum Communications website. That's the Grand Forks Herald, the Jamestown Sun, the Dickinson Press, and Inforum.com. Again, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.